0: Hi, everyone. Uh, this episode of Habibti Please is going to be a primer to an unlocked episode that we had. Um, so our locked episode was with Howa Meyer, who's a dear friend of the show and myself. And now I'm super excited to do this kind of special um, intro and revisit of that episode that we're going to release, because Howa is actually running as a federal NDP candidate for York Southwestern. And um we we obviously on this show talk about electoral politics and we talk about tools beyond electoral politics and um, sometimes myself and some of the guests waver on electoral politics. But when we have people on who want to use electoral politics as a show, they're people that I truly believe in. And Howell is one of those people since I first met her and saw her speak. So Howell, welcome
1: to the show. And how are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. It's a Sunday. It's beautiful outside. Um, it's not too cold. So. Considering we're in Canada in the dead of winter, that's pretty pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> pretty good. Um,
0: yeah, it's beautiful outside. And and can you tell us um, more about York Southwestern and what inspired your run and what you've been up to since the last episode?
1: Yeah, absolutely. York Southwestern is a really interesting community, and I mean maybe the way that I'll speak about it uh, is the way that it became clear to me that it was a. Uh, Uh, a community that others didn't see as a desirable place to live or work or learn. Um, When I first, um, I lived in Vancouver for a good chunk of my life. I went to high school, actually, though, in York Southwestern. My family, so uh, extended family, uh, parents uh, lived in York Southwestern, and I would come uh, every summer to visit my grandmother for a really long time. And so when I fully moved back, uh, like I decided to make, make the jump, I decided to settle in York. Southwestern. And I went to a really uh, kind of high-profile event. You know, you pay for the table. Somebody had given me a a seat and I thought, oh, this might be a good opportunity to get to know Toronto a little bit, uh, to get my feet wet in the job market. And so I attended. And when I shared with folks that I lived close to Jane and Lawrence, the looks on people's faces around that table were really significant for me. And I couldn't make sense I mean, I knew all the obvious things. It's a neighborhood that's highly racialized. It's a neighborhood with a great deal of black community members who are living within it. it, has a high population of Somalis, has also a high population of Portuguese and Italian folks, mostly seniors. It's, it's a bit of a, it's a mixed community, but the faces is what stuck with me. And I couldn't. Uh, come to terms with what their interpretation of this area was. When I was able to walk the streets fairly comfortably, I had community members and family members who lived there. Like I knew people in the neighborhood. It felt like a home. It felt like a community, it felt like my home. And so when I think about York Southwestern, and I think about, you know, why York Southwestern. I think about how much it's forgotten and how many people, uh, you know, it borders right on Parkdale High Park and the attention Parkdale gets in comparison to York Southwestern, says a lot about um, the kind of organizing that's valued. And again, this is no disrespect to anybody in Parkdale High Park. There's incredible people doing incredible work. Um, But the kind of attention York Southwestern gets is really limited. There's not a lot of resources put into the community and there's a stigma attached to being from, from that community.
0: Yeah. And um one thing that you have around uh, the video that you released with your run nomination is how women who look like you are not expected to run for public office. And that's very true. And it's so interesting to watch like when Trudeau came in and did his cabinet and people were praising it because... uh beyond like the, the like physical makeup of that cabinet being so like binary. And so it was just a weird descrip- description that people were given. People don't really think about, I th- would say like background difference or socioeconomic status difference, or just like people who aren't multi-generational professionals as family members. And I'm wondering if you can expand on kind of that line that you had when you tweeted out the video that women who look like m- me are not expected to run for public office, but here I am doing it anyway. Are you ready?
1: yeah and so I met it was so much more than just women who look like me, right? I didn't just mean black women. I also meant black Muslim women. I also met Somali women knowing the um the stigma around being Somali in this country and the stereotypes that are associated with this particular community. Mm-hmm. Um, I also meant that. People don't have high expectations for Black women in politics, right? And not just in politics, but in general. Like the kind of gasp of surprise when people heard that I was doing this said everything to me. Why would you do this? Why would you put yourself at risk this way? Um, Are you sure you can hack it? Like the kinds of questions that we never ask middle class white male candidates are suddenly lobbied at me. And I haven't even started the political run yet, right? Like I just threw my name in a hat. Um, And so it says a lot about who people think should be. Our elected officials are involved in electoral politics. And I feel like we're in this really important and critical political moment right now where COVID, of course, and people have said this time and time again, has made worse or exacerbated or, in my view, shone a light on some of the things that have been happening for generations and generations to people across the country. But there's also this interesting appetite for change uh, in a way that I, I haven't seen in a very long time. So, you know, I think I I was responding to that by saying Now is the time. There's a small window where people are not interested in the status quo, Um, looking at a government that could potentially flip to a party that had to both part, you know, both the liberals and conservatives have austerity measures ready to be put in place. We saw that the NDP was really advocating uh, for additional resources to be put um, into communities so that they could be safe. We've seen the NDP advocate for additional sick days. Like that's the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to need moving forward. And so, you know, I saw, you know, the, the scarcity, You know, and the limited amount of attention being focused on the communities that have really been directly suffering. And I see it in York Southwestern. And I think I made a choice around it's not uh, anymore enough for me to wait for someone else to come up with a better policy or to come up with a better platform or to actually put resources in the hands of people who need it. Um, this is not the time to profit off of people. This is not the time to profit off of people's deaths, which we've seen happen across the country again with long-term care homes, but also with vaccine distribution. Like you're starting to see all the same systems we spent months talking about, you know, being further exacerbated, become more further entrenched. Who are we going to give the vaccines to? What's the long-term impact on the personal support workers who are racialized in Black primarily women, right? So, I mean, when I say it's, I'm throwing my hat in the ring, are you ready? I mean, we don't have to do this the way everyone else has done it before. We don't. And we don't have to believe that Ottawa is not able to be changed. And we don't have to believe that the House of Commons is not the people's house. You know, we are responsible for it. We also own it. It belongs to us. It is our democracy. We can inform what happens there, but we have to be really bold um, and push for some really serious changes,
0: yeah, and provincially we witness like Ford following in the steps of um Mike Harris, and so like if if there's gonna be a time to push back to avoid um like we know we know history tells us what the Harris government left us with now, and what the Ford government's gonna do ten years from now for another generation of young people and how young people were left behind in this and and other marginalized folks and uh, another thing I guess is you, we understand why you were running in New York Southwest and, but also why NDP?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think uh, the communities that ask me that question the most are ones that have the least amount of faith in the electoral uh, political system because it's, uh, it doesn't often serve, serve them. Um, and so why the NDP? I think the NDP has shown real leadership during the pandemic to be quite frank. Um, I Will always, and I I say this frankly, and I say this as a black woman who has lived in this country for quite a long time, I will always have a hesitancy around electoral politics, always, because I am well aware of who politics serves. I'm aware of that. And that's a history we can't get away from. That's a history that we need to grapple with. Um, And that's a history that I'm not going to pretend to ignore as I enter into electoral politics. And I recognize there's a space in place for some diplomacy and how we might move and navigate political parties. But here's the thing that I have some accountability to is also the people in the communities who have been deeply harmed by those exact political parties. So I think when people ask me why NDP, my first reaction is always to say, I recognize the hesitation around electoral politics. And for me at the stage where I am right now, it's time to opt in and see if there are policies and legislation that I can move to shift and change with a group of dedicated change makers. And I think the best opportunity for those changes uh, for me, where I am in my current journey uh, is through the NDP.
0: Yeah, and that makes that makes sense, especially with um, like you mentioned before the agitation that they've been providing during uh, COVID nineteen um, and the asks that they've had. And I'd be really interested to hear um, as somebody from York Southweston what you think asks you would have are or what you're running on uh, to secure this nomination. Like what are things that you desire for your community?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's a difficult question because I always come back to my community organizing roots which is um, what is different now than uh, what was happening a year ago. And so our plan is to launch a series of town halls over the next couple of weeks to really hear from people what are the most pressing issues. We know the, we. Like, I'm aware of the basic ones. So I know that there's a significant issue with infrastructure, uh, housing infrastructure and flooding. Um, so communities are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars replacing, you know, uh, their basements or other important infrastructure in their homes because of flooding that's set up by poor uh, infrastructure in the city. Um, I'm aware that housing continues to be an issue. I mean, this is not a surprise for anybody, hopefully should not be a surprise for anybody across the country, uh, but increasing the amount of affordable housing, but also safe accessible, you know, repaired housing that's affordable for people to live in and affordable meaning that if we're looking at a community like York Southwestern, where people are living under the poverty line, charging people $1,500, $1,600 a month for rent is just not feasible. It's just not possible. And then in the context of COVID, you know, having evictions take place during a time you're supposed to shelter in place just seems, seems completely inhumane. Uh, To me, that we would kick people out of their homes at a time when we're asking people to stay home. So, I mean, that's that's pretty stark. But I think really the the answer for me there is is what I shared at the beginning, which is let's have a broad scale community dialogue about what's happening um, and what's changed in the last year. uh, And let's get some added resources and attention put on York Southwestern. Maybe what I'll share is. Um, For a long time, we haven't had, um, at the federal level anyway, an elected official who's asking those questions, doing those town halls, and responding to the needs as they arise. We've had an MP who has been a minister for quite some time, um, and his attention has been focused in Ottawa, not in York Southwestern.
0: Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I see that in other communities too, where when the riding I'm in is similarly where the person who is elected time and time again has a larger role for the country um, as a minister. And so the local kind of lens has been perhaps lost or not prioritized, which is, it makes sense, like logistically, like that's just a logistical thing that makes sense. Another thing I wonder is you and I both come from community-based research backgrounds. So that's how we met in our master's degrees at York. And we had a supervisor who's heavily based in community research. And so um, often people who run have these backgrounds that are like they're lawyers or they're business people. And I'd want to hear more from you about like why it matters that we have people like us who are either um, have community organizing backgrounds, but also have this other skill set of community based research where we do know how to maybe have a town hall in a different way.
1: Yeah, I think. um One of the things, and it depends on what writing you're a part of. It depends on the communities you're engaging with. But one of the strongest lessons that I picked up in our time during our master's program was that Um, You can't go in with an idea of what you'd like people to say to you or what your final outcome is. And I think this government has a history of doing stakeholder consultations that are really about rubber stamping consultations, as opposed to really listening um, and being able to decipher what it is that people are actually asking for or what the needs are. And I think that's where that community research background comes in really helpful. People say a lot of things, um, but to be able to thread together what they've shared with you and to pick up on some themes and some needs, I think is a skill that comes directly out of community-based research. And so um, even the approach, right? When I say we're going to host a series of town halls and look at what the needs are now versus a year ago, I'm sure there's a lineup of people that will tell me, you don't need to do that. There's already, we already know what all the needs are, but one person is not the same as a hundred people is not the same as 2000 people. Mm -hmm. And giving people the opportunity to share what's happening for them also builds community, right? Like this is the thing about these research projects that we're engaged in. You're not just interested in going in once and leaving, but you're also looking to build infrastructure. You're looking to build community cohesion. You want to leave it better than when you entered back into the space. And so that's also some of my thinking in my political run is, if I if I win uh, and become the MP of York Southwestern, um, or if I don't, I still want to leave the community stronger than it was when when I began my run. and that's that's the frame I think I mean, I'm sure you would agree that's the frame I think I come into yeah. it using that background, which is very different than perhaps a corporate person.
0: yeah, i I think so. i I've always been fascinated by how the House of Commons when you trace back, people's backgrounds. It's either multi-generational families or if they're first gen, they're like a lawyer. And that's like there's a lot of like privilege and a type of training that goes into that. And it just to me would make sense to have a House of Commons filled with people with other types of skills and insights and backgrounds. And I I think, and I I'm biased and everybody knows that, but community-based research to me makes sense as a background to have in the House of Commons. And I think you're right because we had Omar Fata on my other show where um He was like kind of an underdog candidate. Um, He won in his second run, but him being in there, even the first run and losing, he put certain things on the agenda that the incumbent had to address. So the incumbent never addressed Fight for 15 in the past. He just kept winning without touching it because Omar brought it into the ring. He had to change his views on it and say, yeah, okay, I'll support Fight for 15 because my competitor is. And so no matter what, I think think, um, runs like this, um, where you have this incumbent who's a minister, it's like the AOC effect, right? Like you move the goalposts, a hundred percent,
1: a hundred percent. And and this is a this will largely be a digital campaign, mm. which is unlike a uh, previous campaigns, right? This will the kind of door knocking, the kind of canvassing will happen, but to a much much smaller degree. And I don't think a lot of politicians who are used to being working in a corporate environment are prepared for that. It's not just about, you know, how many other people can knock on a door for you. It's also about the perception of you online and your response um, on some of these platforms to really, really um, important issues. And one thing I'll say too is I am really, I'm a youth worker. That's where I started my career first and foremost. And people who have worked with me for a long time know I've worked with young people for a really, really long time. We have a lot of young people in York Southwestern. The rate of violence is significant, significant. And that is not an issue that's been on our MP's agenda. And it will be this election because we really cannot continue to ignore a very valuable and critical component of this writing. And young people, more than any other group, will participate in a digital election as opposed to a door knocking canvassing election. So I think that that's going to be front and center. What happens, um, why we're not engaging with young people in the way that we should be and what their thoughts are about the community that they're living in and contributing to as well.
0: Yeah. And um like thinking about the digital aspects of this, everything has to be digital basically right now. And you're doing a a digital meeting on the 24th, but um, can you tell people who maybe don't know or like wanna get involved with the NDP, like what does it look like to run for a
1: nomination in a riding? Oh, that's such a great question. I wish somebody had also answered this question for me. Uh, So politics is a bit of an elite sport. So you have you, all the training and the organizing. You need to either have people around you who are incredibly familiar with it, uh, or you have to be a very fast learner, and you have to have learned it in your workplace career at some stage. I think the lessons from work are transferable uh, to launching a nomination campaign, um, and so you. The requirement is uh, to sign up members for the NDP, which is often the first. Uh, roadblock a lot of the folks i was talking to in the writing said yeah if your name is on a ballot i'm going to vote for you but i am not signing up to become a member with a political party and so that's number one the first roadblock when we think about incredibly marginalized communities so you sign up a number of members you host the the party or the writing association hosts a nomination meeting in your writing uh, and then people vote for whichever candidate that they want to move forward uh, to to essentially run in the next election and so uh, the meeting on Wednesday is the nomination meeting. There are no other candidates currently that are running against me, uh, so it's known as an acclamation, which means people. will I'm asking people to just come and celebrate with me at six thirty on February twenty fourth. But it's a slog, right? You pick up the phone and you're talking to folks. It requires uh, time. So if you're working forty hours a week, it's it's super complicated to do. It requires relationships and networks. Again, because of my deep relationships in New York, southwestern, I have a leg up there. I can call people I know who will call people they know. I can you know walk down the street and have a conversation with a coffee store owner who's known me for a while because I go there to get groceries all the time, right? So you you need to really be I think connected, um, and if not, you need to be working with people who are for sure.
0: That's so interesting, though, to get like 40 people during a pandemic. Yeah. To be able to sign on to a political party and then nominate a person. I don't think that's something that people know. I think people think that people just get to run.
1: Yeah, you throw your hat in the ring. But no, you've got to also convince people to vote for you and more than once, and not just vote for you, but also donate to you more than once. Um, And it's really difficult to solicit donations in York Southwestern when I think about how a very large portion of the community is also struggling to survive. So I can't, it's, it's it's a complicated ask. It's a complicated ask. And so as a federal candidate, one of the things that makes it a little bit easier is you can solicit donations from across the country.
0: Okay, that's really interesting too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, Is there anything you want to touch on before then? The the episode that follows will be the one that we did with you in October. Um, But is there anything you want to add to
1: this segment uh, before we roll that one? (laughs) Yeah, just that I'm looking forward to the run. I think as I spoke to before, as I said earlier, it's such an amazing opportunity to connect directly with more people who live in a riding that I so deeply love and to build relationships and to ask people what it is that they need support with, but also to share with people what I'm learning through this political process. And I don't think enough people take the lid off of the shrouded secrecy of how to run for politics. And I hope to do that more and more as we go through, Um, because every time you tell people how to navigate a system, it becomes more and more possible um, for them to then do it on their own. I think about going and doing a master's. Every time I sit with young people and I say, let me show you how to write, your letter, you know, your statement of interest so that it gets past the admissions committee, I think about how many more people will then have access to post-secondary education. And so for me, this is really much of the same. The more I can talk about the process, the more I hope that others will then follow in my footsteps.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate that too. And I, I had some other guests who've kind of given us a little bit of insight um, of different parts at each moment, but, um, It's kind of daunting. And that's like why you see multi-generational families do it, because they're able to have that kind of mentorship that others don't. And that just like kind of cements the kind of privilege we see, but also the kind of one dimensional views, because people are just carrying on similar views from their networks and their families that continue to hold. So I really appreciate you breaking that down and also talking to us about the community and why you're running and what you hope to bring. And we will, in the show notes, link Howa's website and her social media, um, and then also some writing from her and be doing a newsletter around this. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me again to do this kind of little chunk to preface your other bit that we did earlier. Thank you for having me.